Let me tell you about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the high voltage power lines up above. Let me tell you about the Electric Power Research Institute's Pollinator Initiative. Welcome to EPRI Unplugged, the podcast of the Electric Power Research Institute. I'm Donald Cutler, the West Coast voice of the podcast. Today we will discuss the birds and the bees that keep our food growing, our ecosystems in balance, and what the electric power sector is doing to support robust pollinator populations around the world. I'm joined today by Jessica Fox, a director and senior technical executive with EPRI's Environmental Sciences team. She leads EPRI's Pollinator Research and the Power in Pollinator Initiative. This initiative, launched in 2017, is one of the largest collaborations of its kind in the United States, bringing cutting-edge research and utilities together. Jessica holds a BS from UC Davis and an MS from Stanford in Biological Sciences. She's been with EPRI since 2002 in a number of roles supporting this scientific work. So thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So let's let's start with a really basic one. What's a pollinator and why are they important? Yeah, basically a pollinator is anything that moves pollen between uh, between two flower sources. And when the pollen moves, it goes to fertilize so that the flower can grow seeds or fruit um, and keep reproducing. So a pollinator could actually be wind. Something could be wind pollinated. So so it doesn't always have to be a living thing. Um, But the thing that we're most concerned about, since it's hard to control wind, um, (laughs) is is the, the, the insects and the birds and the bats and other things that actually move pollen between the pistil and the stamen between different are we working on any research to move wind and figure out how to control it? Just, just wondering. <laughs> yeah. Well, not in the pollinator space <laughs> so far. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. So, as we said in the intro, and what you just note, you noted, um, what is the pollinate uh, power and pollinator initiative, and what what's it trying to do? Yeah, the power and pollinator initiative we launched in late 2017. So we're about almost two years into that right now. It launched um, very strongly, so it became very quickly the largest collaboration. Um, to support power companies to understand what their intersection is with pollinators. So what is that? What is what, what do power companies have to do with pollination? Yeah, it's kind of a strange sort of mix of topics. A lot of times you don't think of power companies really having anything to do with pollinators at all. Right. Um, but in fact, power companies own and operate a huge amount of, of habitat, of natural land, mm-hmm. of landscapes. Um, and within all that land is vegetation, and all that vegetation, of course, supports um, typically blooming flowers or some, some type of flowers that pollinators use as habitat. And a lot of pollinators are also ground nesting. So thinking about the floral and floristics is things we naturally lean into with pollinators. But um, in fact, equally important is what's going on in the ground and the soil. Mm-hmm. Your soil slope, your soil type, because that's where a lot of pollinators nest and reproduce is actually in the soil. So it's the combination of kind of what's going on in the vegetation as well as within the soil. And the power industry, um, a very old industry, um, has a lot of real estate assets, either that they have fee title to and that they own, or that they just have um, responsibility to manage through easements and leases. Mm -hmm. So between fee title, easement, and lease, you're talking about millions of acres um, around the world. I mean, that's millions of acres around the world that power companies intersect with. Well, that's, I mean, that's that, that gets me to my, my next question. They own a ton of land, but they also need to keep vegetation away from their facilities. 
Um, could you talk a bit about this balance and the role that Epri plays to ensure a safe uh, a power system as well as a robust pollinator environment? Yeah, that's that's a that's a fundamental question, right? That's exactly the right question to be asking, actually, for the Electric Power Research Institute. Is the core mandate, as you probably heard in your other podcast, is safe, reliable, affordable electricity, right? right? Exactly, and environmentally responsible. It's, right? a, it's a tough four. It's a tough four balance. Right? Yeah, how do you balance these things? So. If your fundamental thing is for the power company to provide kilowatt hours, so power at the plug. Mm -hmm. If if the power went out and a company got a call, hey, my power went out, and the company said, don't worry, we're going to have it back on tomorrow. We're working on protecting bees right now, and you just have to sit tight, right? I don't think that would go. There's not a good balance, right? (laughs) I mean, your customer or your hospital or your school, you know, these electricity is a fundamental thing that we've all to rely upon. Um, We've also come to rely upon pollinators, of course, because one in every three bites of food is pollinator dependent. We need these pollinators. So how how do we sort of um, balance these uh, these needs that that we really depend on? And that's what we're looking at in the Power and Pollinator Initiative. So if you're at a substation, for example, there's um, requirements for your vegetation height to manage your substation. Um, some of these are legal legal requirements. You have to keep it down to four inches or six inches with, within a substation. Within a hydro facility, maybe four to six inches of your upland vegetation. A lot of it, sometimes it has to, it's required as turf grass, so mm-hmm. lawn that doesn't support pollinators really at all. So what we're looking at is where are there opportunities that maybe these regulations or best practices or vegetation management that have historically been done Maybe they can be modified right. so that you get multiple uses of your property. Yeah. Um, a really good example is solar sites. So when you put in solar panels in this transition to the future power system, big push on solar and renewables. Well, let's really be thinking about when you put in your solar site, how can you do it in a way that's friendly to biodiversity, that is friendly to how water moves, to so right. watershed and watershed management, stormwater runoff. And there's ways to set up these solar projects so that they're not having such a huge negative impact on biodiversity and pollinators and the soil health and erosion. Yeah, I mean, the, that makes perfect sense. And you kind of touched on this. Uh, obviously, we care about this because we like eating food and that's you know, a good idea. But why would a, would a power company want to jump in on this for, you know, it's why would they be involved in this? Yeah. So, I mean, this is really an enormous opportunity for the electric power industry and, frankly, any other industry that has to manage land to jump in and support um, something that we all really have a responsibility to help contribute to. Even mm-hmm. your urban homeowner, right. how they manage their front garden and their backyard. Um, there's a role for everybody on this topic of pollinators. It is a fundamental ecological and social issue to pr- protect um, even if you're even if you're not into the general concept of protecting biodiversity for its inherent value, let's just say that that's not important to you. The inherent value of species, that's fine. Well, what is important to us is eating, and we need nutrition, we need vitamins, and we need these species. If you think about pollinators and there's technology, let's talk about technology. Could you replace bees uh, and and hummingbirds with a technology? Well, there's drones. A drone could do that. 
uh, in 10 years ago, we always talked about the killer app. The killer app was going to solve everything. You just need that one killer app to solve everything. Mm-hmm. Well, now you need your one killer drone and you yeah. can solve pollinators. Is it reasonable? If you think through it, you've got billions of little bees flying around daily doing this job for free. Yeah. And we're not telling them what to do. They do it on their own. We don't have to manage them actively, except for the fact that we've taken out so much habitat that we are having to step in and support these species and support the management of them. And that is becoming a, a whole industry on managing pollinators. Huh. It's, it's an amazing, it's, it's kind of like the, the unseen consequences of, of our progress is this one's right there in front of us mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, speaking of unseen problems, what are the problems that you're solving through this pollinator project? And what are some of the ones that you've come up against that you didn't really expect to see? Yeah, so um, so for for electric power companies, I mean, one thing that this one problem that's getting solved pretty quickly with our collaborative initiative. So we have about thirty companies in this collaborative initiative now. Um, so when you have thirty companies in, they they talk and yeah. they share, and they're like, "Hey, I'm doing this for you know, I have this whole integrated vegetation management program in all my transmission lines." What are you guys doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the sharing about what works and what doesn't and creating confidence um, between the companies. Say, I had this problem with my VP. They just don't, they don't know what a pollinator is. What do you do? You know, mm-hmm. how do you do that briefing? How do you ramp them up? And somebody else will step in. And so it helps create this momentum and confidence. And it also helps solve some, some just some early basic problems with communication and, and, uh, and, and helping companies sort of get together and and share resources. In the longer term, we're going to create solutions for deeper technical questions. Mm -hmm. So if you have $10,000 to do a project, where should you do it? And we're creating GIS tools that map um, pollinator habitat. So you know where you should do a project based on proximity to, say, an agriculture area. Mm -hmm. If you want to support pollination services to increase orange supply or blueberry production or apples or Mm -hmm. whatever, um, where should you put that project based on the land that you have management control over? I like apples. That seems like a good (laughs) idea to me. Um, So switching gears a little bit into some of the the news we've seen recently, uh, we we saw one of the largest increases in monarch butterflies in recent history this mm-hmm. last year, according to a number of, of researchers. Um, is this the start of a trend or are we seeing a result of extreme weather impacting birth rates of this particular pollinator? You know, from what I've read, it's a climate change question, but that's why I wanted to ask you. Yeah, you've studied a little bit, huh? Yeah, I did my homework. Okay. So, yeah, so the monarch is a huge issue. So the monarch is one pollinator, right? Yeah. Well, actually... Monarch, the monarch is, is sort of considered an honorary pollinator because she doesn't really move and pollen and, and that well, okay. right? The main the main ones that do the pollination services are the bees, okay. right? However, um, monarch sort of falls in this pollinator bucket. So this year was a big year for the monarch, big year, because um, the decision to list the monarch as endangered or threatened under the, the Federal Endangered Species Act uh, was on deck for this year, this past June of 2019. Um, and in that year, it happened that the population count for the overwintering habitat, like you said, it tripled mm-hmm. from prior years. So are we now to say, even though it was on a multi-year decline, if yeah. you look at the graphs, it, it was precipitous, mm-hmm. right? And just this past year, it bumped up threefold. 
So yeah, some of the monarch experts have said that that may be a climate issue, that it was just the perfect scenario that year, this past year, to to count the monarch populations and for it to, to come up by threefold. Will it continue? I can't answer that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I cannot answer that. And, and everybody, we're definitely having a lot of um, dinner conversations about the monarch and what's going to happen next year. Yeah. Um, but we have another two years to measure and monitor monarch habitat. They delayed the listing decision as endangered or threatened until December of 2020, mm-hmm. um, which was a big, big um exciting announcement for all of us pollinator people um it's about as exciting as you get in my world um oh no that seems this seems pretty exciting yeah so so we'll see but the monarch we're watching that and apri actually is doing research on monarch um and the research that we're going to be that we're going to be doing over the next year and a half uh, ahead of the next decision to list it as endangered or threatened will well, we anticipate will certainly inform that decision yeah. that the agencies are going to be making in December of 2020. Yeah, it seems that you can't make one decision off of a singular uh, data point, but right. you know, it it seems that everyone's excited about it because they're pretty. Oh yeah, the monarch's iconic, yeah. right? I mean, your kids know about the of monarch, course. yeah. Right? Like my my son's four years old. He watches Wild Kratts. He loves the he loves the monarch. <laughs> it's uh, all all that stuff is good times. Uh, so. Moving on to another uh, pollinator um, that gets gets a bad rap uh, sometimes because they're not as pretty. Uh, let's talk bats. Um, and bats and wind turbines, they don't get along so well. Um, they kind of bump into each other. They cause damage to each other. Usually the wind turbine wins. Uh, but can you discuss some of the work that you're doing to safeguard both the bat populations and areas that have significant wind generation potential? Mm, yeah. Okay. So you just merged into a couple of really important questions. One are bats pollinators. So bats, um, bats are pollinators. There's a lot of carnivorous bats that mm-hmm. just eat meat. And then there's vegetarian bats. So one thing that you keep in mind when you're talking about bats and we merge in from pollinators over to bats, not all bats are, are nectar feeders, mm-hmm. right? Some of them fly around and they just capture all the bugs and mosquitoes and stuff like that. So it's night. like a square rectangle, rectangle square. Thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But bats are also very pretty. So your assumption <laughs> that they're not as pretty as monarch could be debated. Understandable. Um, so, yeah, so along the idea then going into the wind discussion, so EPRI has research um, looking at um, bat strikes to wind turbines. And actually we have something, some really, really amazing technology that EPRI has developed and we have the, the intellectual property too um, that limits bats hitting the turbines. It actually uh, it actually senses the bats. Um, bats uses echolocation mm-hmm. um, and it senses the, the echolocation off of these turbines and it slows your turbines down automatically. So when the bats are coming, it slows your turbine rotation down mm-hmm. Um, and it's reduced bat mortality by 80%. Wow. So it's quite amazing. It's actually a really, really fundamental solution to bat strikes on wind turbines that um, can be applied worldwide. 80% is impressive. It's huge. It's a huge, huge, huge number. That's one thing, you know, working at EPRI that, you know, when you hear about that, I didn't even, you know, I'm not even a lead on that project. That's Christian Newman and John Goodrich Mahoney. Um, and um, I'm just so proud that yeah. that was developed, that they worked on it. And I'm, I'm proud to talk about it, even yeah. though it wasn't my project. Yeah. Right? Uh, 80% is, that's that's an un- unbelievable number in science. Big number. Yeah. yeah. The other thing on wind and the, the conversation about wind and pollinators that actually Upri's getting into research now, I talked about the solar pollinator nexus yeah. previously. 
the wind pollinator nexus is really interesting. And some studies have come out, not every studies, but peer-reviewed journal studies that show that in wind farms, your insect population goes down um, precipitously. So we're, we're scoping out research now and just on the front end of that and thinking about wind farms and how they relate to pollinator uh, well-being mm -hmm. um, and uh, working on that. I mean, it could be, you know, one of the, one of the questions is, do those insects just slam into those wind turbines, <laughs> right? And it, then, of course, they do, right. right? But one, does it reduce the efficiency of electricity generation with insects being on your turbine? Question. Yeah. Question, big question big mark. Big question. Yeah. Um, and then the other question, which sort of seems like, I don't know. It's like a windshield problem, right? <laughs> yeah. And then the other question is, um, is does it affect the pollinator population? Right. So can you get enough mortality on those turbines that it actually has an impact? When you hit a bat, that's way more impactful, you know, because one bat could, you could, you, you hit a hundred bats, you're definitely affecting the reproductive potential of that, of that colony of bats. You hit a hundred insects, eh, I mean, I'm so, you know, it sucks for those insects, <laughs> yeah, right? but the, it, it may not affect the, the overall um, health of that population. So right. that's some of the work that we're doing that is related to wind. Excellent. And that's, I wouldn't have even thought about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it makes perfect sense as yeah. I drove here today and had to clean this is off why my we, windshield. We right? have full-time jobs. Exactly. We get to think of all these things. That's that, and I like talking about them. And that gives me <laughs> an awesome excuse to talk to really interesting folks right. like you on this podcast. Um, so what should people know about the pollinator space that they don't know? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of trickling out there into into the zeitgeist, but you know, bugs and stuff you don't think about it all that much. All right. They're real important, right? Yeah. Okay, a couple things to know is um not all bees sting. Okay. Okay. So when you're at a picnic and I'm just getting down to brass tacks, what should you know? And when you're taking your kids out, right? Okay. So pollinators, it has a very personal touch to it. Mm -hmm. We all interact. We all eat food, right? So um, you have a connection to pollinators. You have a responsibility to pollinators as a, as a group, as a biological community. You have something that you can do to support them. And you need to think about and identify what that is based on where you live, um, do you own a house? Can you manage a garden? Do you reduce your herbicide or pesticide use within your own property? What kind of food do you eat that relates to pollinator health and well-being? Can you make purchasing decisions that better support how those agricultural systems are, are done? So you have a role in this issue. Okay, so when you're at your picnic yeah. and you're sitting there and your kids are going nuts because you're eating your hamburgers and hot dogs and the dang bees are everywhere. Yeah. Okay, Bees are vegetarian. So why your bees want to get on your burger? It's not a bee. That's a wasp. Okay. Those are scary. Wasps sting and they don't have barbed stingers. So they sting you once, they sting you again, they keep on going. It's not a barbed stinger, right? They can okay. just keep going. That's not a bee. That's a wasp. Bees are aggressive. Can, I mean, wasps can be aggressive. They're very territorial and they want your burger. Okay. So if you run around, you're like, I hate bees. They sting, they sting. A lot of bees don't sting at all, mm -hmm. and the bees are not the ones trying to get your burger. All right, so we've got to watch out for those wasps. Yeah. They're, 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 they're the bad guys, I guess, here in, in the uh, picnic well, arena. I don't know if they're good or bad. I'm just clarifying <laughs> that when people say, I don't want to support pollinators because they're going to sting me, yeah. think again. Okay. Because the majority of bees, 
are not, if they do sting, it's not a big sting and they don't have barb stingers. You don't have to freak out about it. Yeah. I catch bees constantly just with my, I go up to flowers and I catch it with my hand. If I don't have my net, I just catch the bees with my hand. It's fine. Yeah. Well, I won't tell my son to do that, <laughs> but it's good to know. And I'll stick away from those wasps there. I'm going to go ahead and say they're the bad guys yeah. of the picnic world. Um, so finishing off on, on a really light note, what's your favorite pollinator? Oh gosh, that's so easy. So the Bombus occidentalis, it's um, Bombus is the genus for bumblebee. Mm -hmm. Bumblebees are amazing. I love almost all the bumblebees. They're these big, fluffy, fuzzy things. They're like little teddy bears that you can just go up and hug these things. I love the bumblebees. And when they, when they fly, they have this very low, like, <laughs> it's not like a you know, annoying thing. It's this very low, very mellow, very grounding vibration yeah. on the bumblebee. So mine is the wet, the bump, the Bombus occidentalis is a Western bumblebee. It's a declining species. Mm -hmm. It's rare. It's, it's hard to see. Um, I recently observed it, um, at the UC Davis bee garden. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's my favorite species. That's, that's cool. I'm glad you had one right, right off the bat. Of course you did because, you're our, you're our pollinator yeah. person. Uh, so thank you so much for, for joining us today uh, and talking about this. Uh, thank you to the entire Epri Unplugged team, Amy Mills, uh, Jordan Russell, uh, Matthew Oakley. And until next time, we're shaping the future of electricity. <laughs>